0: If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's where we'll be in our time uh, together this morning as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians. Well, yesterday afternoon, I was at my son's friend's birthday party, and my primary objective at birthday parties is to always find the birthday cake to find the birthday cake and I found it. It was a glorious vanilla cake and I had a giant piece right before we left. But as I was eating that piece of cake, it made me think of comfort food. It made me think of comfort food and I think we understand that here in the United States, the reality of comfort food. In fact, I had a little trouble sleeping last night so I decided to Google comfort food and look up some statistics in the U S and the number one comfort food in the United States is pizza. It's pizza. That's also uh, the number one, uh, item of food that, uh, is photographed pizza. That's the number one in the United States. By the way, uh, for those that are 70 years and older, the number one comfort food is ice cream, ice cream, so if, you're, if you're, you are my people, I would, that's my comfort food. It would be ice cream. But I mention those things because as, as Christians, of course, our comfort doesn't come from food. And, and we know that reality. But our comfort comes from the gospel. And it comes from God's word. And the passage that we come to today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 Paul's primary intent in writing this passage is to bring comfort. So he doesn't describe or talk about pizza or ice cream or any of those things. Instead, he talks about an event in the future, an event known as the rapture. The title for the message this morning is The Rapture, A Present Comfort in a Future Reality. You follow along as I begin reading in 1 Thessalonians four, thirteen through 18. Paul writes, "'But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord.' That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, as you know, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament and possibly 14 if you believe that he authored the book of Hebrews. Over time, Paul's letters have been grouped together and labeled with certain titles. Of course, you have the letter to the Corinthians, Uh, You have the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, You have the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But when it comes to 1 and 2 Thessalonians, they've often been labeled as the eschatological epistles. So when we look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul has a primary goal and intent with consistently referring to the end times in fact in 1 Thessalonians at every major transition point in the book Paul will highlight some aspect of the future some aspect of Christ's return uh, a particular point of his second coming let Let me show you just a few examples of this, just to sort of set our passage in its context. Now look at the end of chapter 1. So Paul lays out the marks of a healthy church. He lays out the marks of a healthy church, and then he concludes that section. Look in verse 10 by talking about waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. He basically says, look, you're a healthy church, but endure and keep your eyes fixed upon the return of Christ. If you look through chapter 2 and you begin reviewing chapter 2 in your own mind, chapter 2 is basically Paul's explanation of his own ministry. And as he wraps up that theme, look at the end of chapter 2 all the way down in verses 19 and 20, Paul talks about his love for the Thessalonians, and then he refers to Jesus Christ and his coming, the, the, the second coming. Go over to chapter three, as Paul shares his uh, interactions with Timothy, who was essentially the messenger between him and the Thessalonians, and he gets into more of a sketch of his own life and desire to be with the Thessalonians. Look at the end of chapter 3 in this prayer uh, that Carrie taught through a couple weeks ago. Notice in verse 13, he refers to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip past our passage today and go to chapter 5. After Paul finishes giving certain exhortations and blessings and admonitions to the Thessalonians. Notice verse 23, he ends that section talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a large percentage of second Thessalonians hinges on Paul's discussion of the future. So in Paul's mind, as he writes to the Thessalonians, he wants them to press on as individual Christians chapter 4, and then he wants them to press on as a church, chapter 1, and while they press on, he wants them to focus on the return of Christ, the fact that they are living in such a way that gives evidence to what they believe about the end, that they will be united with Jesus Christ and their Savior. Part of being a healthy Christian, part of being a healthy church includes having biblical convictions about the end times. Now, there are several passages, as you know, in the Old and New Testament that tell us explicit details about the end. This is especially true in the passage that we'll study together here in 1 Thessalonians 4, commonly known as the rapture passage. Passage. Uh, Now we have to ask ourselves one question. Why does our knowledge of the end matter? Well, Paul tells us it matters because it helps us live in the present. It's Paul, and I don't know if he's doing this, and I don't necessarily think that he is, but this is very much like the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, you could summarize Ecclesiastes By saying, look, Ecclesiastes teaches that life happens and you're going to die, but you need to live with that in mind and live God's way. That's what Paul is getting at in one of his motifs in these two epistles. Know that Christ is coming and live in anticipation of that. So in our time together this morning... I want us to consider six aspects of the rapture so that this glorious future event will bring us a present day comfort. This is the primary reason Paul writes this passage. He wants believers to be comforted and we'll work through just a handful of verses uh, together. Now, before we do this, I've got on your handout and up here on the notes some key terms that I want us to have in our mind as we'll use interchangeably over the next 40 minutes or so. First off is the term eschatology. Eschatology. All that means is a study of the last thing. So what is your theology of the end times? That's what the word eschatology means. Parousia is also a familiar word that you'll find in these discussions. And that word basically means coming of the Lord or or the Lord's presence. We'll come across that word in chapter 4, verse 15 today. I'll show you when we get there. And then the last word uh, is the word rapture. It is the word rapture. It comes from a Greek word, harpazo, translated into Latin And you can see that there, rapio, and that's where we get the word rapture, to be caught up. And I'll show you where that is in the text today. So those are some key terms you can have locked in your mind. If you need to review those along the way, do so. But let's begin working through these six aspects of the rapture. The first aspect is the reasons for the rapture the reasons for the rapture. And that'll kick us off here in verse 14. Look at it with me. Uh, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So my goal here is to formulate a reason or reasons why Paul felt it was necessary to write about this specific future event. The first reason, and I think it's plain here, you saw this, is that the Thessalonians were genuinely uninformed. They were genuinely uninformed. Now, to be fair, and we'll see this next week when we get into chapter 5, the Thessalonians did have a theology of the end times. They did have an understanding or a concept of the end times. It just wasn't comprehensive. So to this point, the rapture of the church and what would happen to dead Christians, they were just uninformed. Paul says, look, I don't want you to be uninformed, which is implying they were. But what the Thessalonians were uninformed about, and this is the key that we can't miss, what they were uninformed about related to their brothers and sisters in Christ that had passed away. Uh, they, They understood the reality of a resurrection. They understood the reality of the second coming in Christ but they wanted to know specifically what would happen to my brothers and sisters in Christ that had passed away. Will they miss Christ's return? That's what was grieving them. Would they miss the return of Christ? So Paul says, look, I don't want you to be uninformed brethren about those who have fallen asleep. Of course, you know, a sleep here is a metaphor that was used in both the Old and New Testament to refer to someone that had passed away. Now, because Timothy was on the ground acting as the mail carrier between Paul and the Thessalonians, he probably came back to Paul and told him that there was much confusion about this particular topic. So Paul, of course, with that shepherd's heart and he was a theological giant, he lays out a theology of the end times so that the brethren there would be comforted that their dead brothers and sisters in Christ would be reunited with them at the return of Christ. So that's one reason why Paul wrote. Another reason is that they might have been influenced by the culture. They might have been influenced by the culture. We can't know this to be sure, but we can at least assess what were the afterlife beliefs in the culture at this time. Well, the culture, the pagan religions taught there was no future for the body after death. They taught that the soul would retain some bodily form and that it would be recognizable to others in the afterlife. Certain resting places were designated for those with elite social status or heroicness. So you can see how there's sort of a melting pot of beliefs about the afterlife. The Stoics doubted man's future state. They weren't really sure that there would be an afterlife. The Epicureans taught some form of annihilationism. Basically, when you die, you go out of existence the great commentator, William Hendrickson, he says this, apart from Christianity, there was no solid basis for hope and connection with the afterlife. So the Thessalonians are dropped down in the middle of Macedonia. All of these pagan religions and cults are surrounding them and all of that type of teaching about the afterlife had been possibly infiltrating the church. Paul says, no, no. That's not what God teaches about the afterlife. So Paul could have written for that reason. Thirdly, uh, there could have been some false teachers circulating in this time that were bringing corrupt doctrine about the end. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me show you this real quick. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There was always the threat of false teaching looming. We see that in Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 1. But even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2, Paul hints at the fact that there could be people coming around this church disturbing them either by spirit or a message or as a letter as if from us. Paul says, don't be shaken if people imitate us and teach you doctrines that don't align with what we have already said. So it's possible, Paul writes, because false teaching was trying to creep in. But lastly, and second to being genuinely uninformed, Paul writes because the Thessalonians needed to be comforted. They needed to be comforted. So his primary objective wasn't to counter the culture, uh, but it was to inform and comfort. It was to inform and comfort. Look at verse 13. This describes how the Thessalonians were reacting. Verse 13, so that you will not grieve as do the rest, referring to the outside world who have no hope. So some of the Thessalonians were grieving over the loss of loved ones, which which is right, and, and we should. But in particular, their grief was over the fact that they believed that loved ones would miss the return of Christ. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see it. It's common in our time and in our day when people look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 to immediately jump to the theological debate. When does the rapture happen in the future? What is the timing? Now, we'll look at that at the end. But Paul's primary objective is to be a shepherd. It's to be an overseer. It's to be a pastor. It's, it's to care for this flock. And he says, I'm going to inform you And I'm going to comfort you with the truth of of God's word. And that's exactly what he does. That's the reason he wrote. But there's another aspect of the rapture that we need to consider. And that is the foundation of the rapture. The foundation of the rapture. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So as Paul seeks to comfort those believers who were struggling with the idea that dead Christians would miss the return of Christ, he says not only will they be eyewitnesses of Christ's return, But it is as sure as the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the historical event of Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation for the event of the rapture. As sure as Christ died and rose again, what is equally true is that Christ will one day return and every dead Christian will be there to witness it. Now, I think this is interesting here. Look back in verse 14 and watch the language that Paul uses. Paul intentionally uses the human name of Jesus to add depth to his argument. Jesus' death and resurrection was a physical reality. The rapture will be a physical reality. Jesus was resurrected in a physical glorified body and at the rapture, the dead in Christ will be raised with a physical glorified body. Christ's death and his resurrection was firmly established in history and at the rapture, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and therefore they will be established in history. I think Leon Morris Uh, the theologian and commentator, he just captures what Paul is trying to do here perfectly. He says these words, "'The resurrection is the great triumph act "'wherein the divine quality of the Christian gospel "'is conclusively demonstrated. "'In the light of the resurrection, "'there can be no doubt that God was in Christ, "'and if God was in Christ, "'then just as he raised his son,' So in due time, he will raise those who are in Christ. The resurrection is the guarantee of the Christian hope. I mean, brothers and sisters, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, does he not? That great resurrection chapter, he says, look, if the resurrection isn't authentic, if it isn't real, if it didn't happen, then you are still dead in your sins right? In First Thessalonians, Paul draws on the resurrection again, and he says, as sure as you know of that real authentic event that happened 20 years ago in which the gospel is held together by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be sure that the rapture will happen and that every dead Christian will be there to witness it. Do not grieve, be comforted is all he's saying. Now do you see what Paul did here? Look again at verse 15, or 14, rather. Paul says, "And watch the detail and precision which, which he makes his argument. Paul says, "Even so, God will bring with him, referring to Jesus, God will bring with Christ, so when Christ returns those who have fallen asleep in Jesus." Dead Christians won't miss the return of Christ because they are already with him. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be, yeah, present with the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Of course, the thief on the cross, his body, his physical body, didn't enter heaven that day. It was most likely ripped off of the cross and then burned in the city dump. But because man is a two-part being, both body and soul, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord in this context means that a person's soul is with Christ in heaven Dead Christians won't miss the return of Christ because they are already with him and will be brought back with Christ at the rapture. And it is at the rapture that the souls of those who are with Christ in heaven, it is at that point where they will be reunited with a glorified resurrected body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. So in Paul's mind, when he's laying out this doctrine of the last things or the end times or the rapture more specifically, he emphatically states that there is absolutely no chance that dead Christians will not see the return of Christ. And what's the basis for that claim? What's the foundation for that claim? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the same way that Christ resurrected, believers will be resurrected and receive a glorified body. Well, there's a third aspect that this text gives us about the rapture. And that is the logistics of the rapture. The logistics of the rapture. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty here with the Apostle Paul as he begins to lay out several details of the rapture. First off, he says in verse 15 that the rapture comes with divine authority. The rapture comes with divine authority. Look at verse 15. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Stop right there. The Apostle Paul ensures the Thessalonians that the instructions that he was about to write in the subsequent verses, that those instructions, that doctrine about the end wasn't conceived by him. It wasn't conceived by Silas or Timothy but it came directly from the Lord. Now we have to ask and be inquisitive here, what words of Christ is Paul referring to here? Is this something that Jesus said during his ministry that is not recorded in the gospels? It's possible. Is this something that Jesus taught Paul during those three years He spent learning from Christ in Arabia, Galatians 1. It's possible. Is this new revelation that is being given to Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1? It's possible. The fact of the matter is, we don't know exactly, but good and godly men have landed on all three of these options. But regardless of where Paul is drawing on this divine revelation, He is emphatically stating that this is from the Lord. It is his word. By the way, this type of uh, introductory formula, the the word of the Lord, very common in the Old Testament. Very common in the Old Testament. When, When a prophet would begin to speak on behalf of God, he would say something like, thus saith the Lord, right? This is basically what Paul is doing here. So the rapture comes with divine authority. Uh, The rapture also takes place in a particular order. The rapture also takes place in a particular order. Notice verse 15. Paul gives a brief general order, somewhat of a summary he says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, that word coming, the Greek word there is where we get that perusia. So he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there is sort of the general overview of the rapture. It will be those who are dead in Christ that will rise first, and it will be those who are alive who will move and go second. So let's look at those details. First off, we're told that Christ will descend. So Christ's descent is what starts the rapture. Notice in verse 16, it says, "'For the Lord himself will descend from heaven.'" So at the rapture, the Lord Jesus Christ will leave the right hand of the Father where he has been seated since the ascension, and he will descend from that heavenly throne uh, to the earth. Uh, The word descend, it means to move downward. Uh, It could literally be translated to climb down. It's the same word used of the angel that descended from heaven and rolled away the stone over Jesus' tomb. So Paul says that Christ himself will descend from heaven in bodily form. That's why he uses the name Jesus back there in a prior verse. So Christ will descend. Next, the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. That's verse 16. It clearly says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, in Christ is a key expression. It describes those who have trusted in Christ during the church age, which would be from the time of Pentecost in Acts 2 up until today, the church age. It says that those who are in Christ, the dead in Christ, will rise first. So what this means is that the rapture is not a resurrection of Old Testament saints, but it is a resurrection of New Testament church believers. Now, don't misunderstand Old Testament saints will be resurrected, but that comes in a resurrection after the tribulation period, after the seven-year tribulation period. Our argument will be, and we'll see that at the end, that the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation period. So Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So all of those who have repented and believed in Christ since Acts Chapter 2, they will rise first and be united to Christ in the air. So Christ will descend, all of those dead in Christ or asleep in Christ will rise. What happens next? Well, the alive in Christ are then caught up the alive in Christ are then caught up in the air. And this is verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That the Greek word there, along with the Latin word, is where we get the word rapture. And remain will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Christians who are alive and remain, they will be raptured up. They will be caught up with the dead Christians who have been resurrected and they will all meet together in the air with the Lord Jesus Christ. Rapture means to seize or to carry off by force a sudden swoop. Uh, To be snatched up. So the dead in Christ are resurrected and they rise to Christ. And then the alive in Christ are suddenly seized away. Now it's important here to see this. Notice that in this event, Christ himself never comes all the way to the earth. Instead, look here in verse 17. Everyone is caught up together, notice, in the clouds. Uh, this is a large family reunion. A good one with no issues and no drama. This is all of Christ's people meeting together in the air. The idea of meet, it, has, it carries the idea of, of welcoming It's a reception, uh, hospitality. You see why the Thessalonians needed to know this? They were grieving because they thought their fellow dead Christians would not be at this event. But Paul is telling us, look, Christ, he will descend and everybody will gather together in a massive family reunion. Notice the end of verse 17. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It is at this point, brothers and sisters, it is at the rapture that all Christians dead and alive will always remain with the Lord. You see why this is so comforting? (laughs) They're not uninformed now. Paul's told them in just a few sentences here, look, Christ is returning, everyone will be there. Oh, and by the way, you'll be with Christ for forever. So he wants their theology of the end times to be rock solid because with that in mind, they can continue to sound forth in the ancient world because they know how it ends. (laughs) No matter what happens here in Macedonia, we will be with Christ in the air one day. So let's continue talking about the logistics. Next, Paul records peculiar sounds. Peculiar sounds, verse 16. After Paul highlights the order of the rapture, alongside that, he includes several peculiar sounds that will accompany the event. So, not only will this be a visible spectacle, but it will be one that is heard across the world. Notice verse 16 the first sound is a shout. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Can you imagine that? I mean, this shout will span the entire world. This word has military tones, it's commanding, it's loud, it's forceful, it's an attention grabber. You can't ignore this. William Hendrickson, commenting from him again, he says that at this point, Christ returns as conqueror. He's coming back for his people with a loud shout. Secondly, there is a loud voice. Verse 16, with the voice of the archangel. We can't be sure, but this is possibly Michael, the archangel, also making a public announcement that Christ is returning. There's a third sound that Paul records will be at this event, and that is the sound of a trumpet. Verse 16, with the trumpet of God. Trumpets were used in the ancient world to summons an army. Were used in the Old Testament, and I love this, to gather God's people together for worship. So those are the logistics of the rapture. Let's move on to verse 18 with the comfort of the rapture. The comfort of the rapture. Again, Paul's shepherding heart comes forth, verse 18, he says, Therefore, with all of that in mind, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Paul doesn't want the theology that he just established with the Thessalonians to merely be an intellectual exercise, although it is that. He primarily wants to help them to be comforted strengthened helped by the way you know this greek word for comfort it's the same one that jesus uses uh, the night before his death when he tells the disciples that he's going away but he's sending a comforter a helper an advocate the holy spirit paul says comfort one another help one another with these words about Christ's return. In Paul's teaching on the rapture, the passage that we're looking at this morning wasn't only meant for Christians during that time. Of course, that was the immediate context. We get that. But Paul's writing is meant for Christians of all ages to be comforted by the fact that whether you sleep or you are alive, you will experience to the fullest, to the max, Christ's glorious return at the rapture. Now, that ends our exposition of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So there's several aspects of the rapture that Paul brings forth there, but there's two other aspects of the rapture that will have to go elsewhere as we sort of uh, bring to completion the, the study of the rapture. And that takes us to the fifth aspect, and we'll turn to a different portion of Scripture, but we'll call this aspect the duration of the rapture. The duration of the rapture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul gave them, the Thessalonians, exactly what they needed to hear. So Paul didn't give an exhaustive treatment of the rapture, but he gave a comprehensive one in the sense that they would be comforted. But later in 1 Corinthians 15, a few years after Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Paul returns to the idea of resurrection and he returns to the idea of Christ's return. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, he begins to describe another aspect of the rapture that he hasn't mentioned in divine revelation uh, before. Look at it, verse 51, Paul writes, behold, I tell you a mystery. So Paul's about to mention something that hasn't been revealed yet. He says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So Paul is saying here, when he's referring the rapture, look, we're not gonna gonna all be dead. And he's referring to Christians of all time. We're not gonna all be dead, but we will all be changed. There he's referring to a, a glorified, resurrected body. He's making that argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Now watch what he does, verse 52. Here's the duration. How long will the rapture Take. How long will the event last? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It's a fascinating text, isn't it? The Greek word for moment is where we get our English word, atom, A-T-O-M, atom. The atom is the smallest conceivable quantity. And in that small amount of time, our bodies will be changed. And to sort of put a bow on it, notice verse 52, Paul says that not only will it happen in a moment, it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. You know how quick your eye moves. So it is with the rapture of the church. It will happen quicker than you can even blink. It's amazing, and astounding event when Christ returns for his church. So that is the duration of the rapture. Let's lastly look at the timing of the rapture. The timing of the rapture. When in the future will it happen? Up next to what events will it happen? Of course, you know, Old and New Testament describes several events that are sort of umbrellaed underneath uh, the end times, several events, the rapture, of course, being one of those. But as you'll notice, First Thessalonians 4 doesn't tell us exactly when it'll happen. 1 Corinthians 15 does not tell us when it will happen. John 14, verses 1 through 3, which is another rapture text, that portion of Scripture does not tell us when it will happen. And and I'll just just flat out tell you. There's no explicit chapter verse that says this is when the rapture happens. There just isn't. So what you have to do is put together sort of a, a theology of the timing of the rapture which is a difficult task to do and one that I'm not going to take you down or take you on a journey through because surely we don't have time for that. But let me say this. In order to determine the timing, you have to build a theological case from other texts of Scripture and other passages of Scripture that either speak directly to the rapture allude to the rapture, or those passages that are at least included in eschatological discussions. For example, the the book of Revelation, it's a passage or a book that you would want to bring into the discussion. It's important to examine that book. So what I want to do here in just the few minutes we have left is just lay out just a short, brief biblical case for a pre-tribulational rapture. And all I mean by that is that Christ will return for his church, as Paul has described in 1 Thessalonians 4, he will return for his church prior to the seven-year tribulation period that is described in the book of Revelation. That's my conviction, that's the position of countryside is for a pre-tribulational rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture. So let's look at the case real quick. And I've got these on your notes or your handout so you don't have to worry about writing them down. First off, why do we believe it's a pre-tribulational rapture? First, because the church is not mentioned in the seven year tribulation period as being on the earth. So if you've been with us on Sunday nights, as Pastor Tom has worked through the book of Revelation, uh, we're hovering around the chapter 17, 18 uh, uh, portion of Revelation right now. But if you were to read through Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the church is never mentioned as being on the earth. In fact, if you were to do a word study of ekklesia, the Greek word for church in the book of Revelation, In chapters 1 through 3, the historic portion of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times in the historic section of Revelation. But in chapters 6 through 19, the church is not mentioned once. The church isn't mentioned again until Revelation 22, and that is in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's a pretty good argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, The second argument would be that a post-tribulational rapture is pointless. So if the rapture happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, it wouldn't make any sense for Christ to rapture the church and then bring them right back down for the millennial kingdom. It's gonna make a lot of people drowsy and have motion sickness. I can barely get on a roller coaster anymore without having challenges. A post-tribulational rapture is inconsequential. It makes no sense. Why would Christ take everybody up to literally bring everybody back down? All of this in a twinkling of an eye. Doesn't make sense. Third, the New Testament letters never warn of a coming tribulation for church age believers. Now, the New Testament letters do talk about the day of the Lord, just like the prophets do but nowhere in the new testament epistles will you find any instructions for how believers are to conduct themselves during this time fourth christ's second coming happens in two stages that's what a lot of people don't understand when we refer to the second coming of christ we are referring to his second advent but we hold to based on the biblical evidence that this second coming happens in two stages one would be christ coming for his church Pre-tribulation at the rapture, seven years later, Revelation 19, Christ coming back, the battle of Armageddon. All of that's lumped under the second coming, but in two different stages or two different phases. Now, there's some great arguments for this, but just sit back and listen to the differences between Christ's two comings at his second coming. And you'll see the difference. Listen to this. At the rapture, Christ stays in the air. At the final events in Revelation, Christ comes to the earth. At the rapture, Christ gathers his own people. At the final events, angels actually gather together the Lord's people. At the rapture, Christ rewards. At the final event, Christ judges. At the rapture, believers leave the earth. At the final events, unbelievers leave the earth. At the rapture, unbelievers remain on the earth. At the final events, believers remain on the earth. At the rapture, there is no establishing of a kingdom. At the final events, Christ establishes a millennial kingdom." So there's a great book. It's by Richard Mayhew. I think he wrote the chapter, at least, that I was drawing from this material. It's called Christ's Prophetic Plans for the Future. It's a great resource. It talks about these arguments. Lastly, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation 3, 10. It, it, It literally says that Christ will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which has come upon the whole world. So it seems that that verse is speaking about a pre-tribulational rapture. Well, that's the fifty-thousand-foot flyover for a biblical case for a pre-tribulational rapture. If you need some homework this week, I encourage you to invest in that a little more. But as I've tried to make clear this morning, I don't want that to be your primary focus as you as you leave here this morning. Know that Paul writes to inform and comfort believers. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. I hope that we have been informed by Paul's writing and that we can be comforted knowing that if you are in Christ today, every one of us will be gathered together in the air to meet the Lord and we will be with him forever. Let's pray together. God, we are amazed by your revelation, uh, your word, your truth, the scripture. We're amazed because you would reveal such precise details to us. You know, not merely for us to sit around a table and debate about, but so that our hearts will be comforted with the fact that no matter if we are dead or alive, we will see your son when he returns. We will not miss that glorious event. We can be 100% sure that will happen because that entire event is based on Jesus' own death and resurrection. And form our mind and form our heart. Comfort us. Knowing that the end is near, and help us live in light of that reality. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.